Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, February 11th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, so we were uh, all glued to our TVs yesterday afternoon because uh, that's what you know you can do when you when you're a full time journalist for pay, and even though you're on deadline, uh, watching the um, watching the impeachment uh, trial of of, of Donald uh, J. Trump, and uh, the case that was being made yesterday was. The events of uh, January 6th um, in separate timelines, uh, what was going on outside, what was going on inside, what was going on uh, from uh, different perspectives of cameras, and then what uh, Donald Trump was doing while all of this was going on in these uh, three or four separate uh, presentations. Um, and the, I think we all agree that the the one truly horrifying new detail that we saw or got was this silent footage of the heroic Capitol uh, policeman, Sergeant Goodman, who was uh, guiding the rioters away from the Senate chamber. He was sort of showing, telling them to go the other way, right? The one that initially we we were told was guy you know was part of a conspiracy to let them in um came upon Mitt Romney in a hallway and uh, and told him this is all with no sound because of the security cameras and told him to go the other way because the mob was coming and Romney turns turns around and runs down the hallway the other way thus indicating that had this not happened had this encounter with with um Sergeant uh, Goodman not happened that he uh, would have uh, met the mob in a matter of 45 seconds, 30 seconds, something like that. And uh, can anybody doubt that um, they would have killed him? Can anyone doubt that they, those people who were screaming and yelling, somebody has a taser in his belt. Other people have these, uh, you know, flagpoles that they're smashing things in with. And there's Mitt Romney, who voted for impeachment last year, who, you know, who voted for uh, and has he is like uh, Trump's main enemy in the Republican Party. Um, so that that was my that was my horrifying takeaway. And I think the way you look at that is to say that uh, uh, it really could have been a lot worse. A couple of serendipitous things happen, including the including the presence and uh, twice of, uh, of of Officer Goodman, that uh, that that let that that made sure that the violence and the and the bloodshed was was not much worse and did not in fact go directly at uh, the elected members of our government, um, and it is astonishing to me that somebody like Lindsey Graham could say that the presentation was offensive. Uh, (laughs) It was offensive and insulting, which is what he said, because ultimately the whole point about this is they need to connect what went on in the Capitol with Trump in order to make the case that Trump must be removed, you know, must be convicted. Um, 
because you have to show that Trump was an animating force here. And uh, so how they do that is, you know, they, uh, you, you either sort of have to go with that on, you have to decide that what he said and what he did functioned as an accelerant or as the, or as the, as the match and, and, and that that was knowing in order to prove in some criminal sense that he, that he was the instigator or a better or the solely responsible for the, for the event. So it is self-evident and it's laid out in the, in the presentation of the house managers, but one of their strategic approaches, which is sound is to essentially absolve all members in that chamber of any responsibility for their um, complicity in what occurred. Uh, but the video footage wasn't uh, absolving at all. Um, one moment that I had not seen before, which was particularly disturbing, was this, um, you know, little mob of troglodytes who had invaded the Senate and were rifling through the documents looking for people to, you know, string up and evidence to present at their show trial that they had in their heads. And um, one of these vandals was combing through papers on Ted Cruz's desk and misinterpreted them and said he had sold us out. And then another one, reading more properly the, the objection to the uh, certification of, I believe, Arizona's uh, electoral counts, corrected him and said, no, 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 he's with us. He's with us. Uh, that's all you need. Well, that's all you need for Ted Cruz. That's all you need for everybody. Anybody who advanced the stop the steal narrative was complicit in the events that animated this siege of the Capitol. If you didn't need any more evidence, here's they. I mean, all they, all of them confessed to it. All of them said they were there because Trump made them do it, uh, very plainly on camera. And then here's this guy saying, "Well, Ted Cruz is part of the team." Something it, else that that I thought uh, the footage showed um, almost, it, almost indirectly, um, was the scale of this thing. Was the size in so many of these clips, especially when you get sort of on the outside, um, the sea of people behind those at the front speaks to um, a movement that was um, so much larger than any, this idea that it was, you know, a sort of small group who planned this um, as a sort of break off uh, group. The the, the size of the thing um, speaks to um, a sort of a, a mass of people being corralled by a, a, by Trump. Frankly. Well, and that I think it's it, and John, you alluded to this uh, earlier, but I think it's important that anyone who watched uh, the narrative that was built by the by the prosecutors yesterday understands now a little with a little more nuance and detail why the Capitol Police and other law enforcement acted as they did on that day. Um, there was the, some of the footage that we got some body cam footage, for example, and there were just these the, and, and also some uh, recorded messages of the law enforcement, you know, talking to each other about what was going on. And they're like, we can't hold the line. They broke the line. And the, and they, the, the command came like fall back. Like this is, a, and that was actually snippets of that stuff was circulating on the internet is look, the cops are actually letting them in. So I, I was glad to see very, a lot of uh, careful scrutiny and also the protective detail of, of, you know, the, the guys and, and gals who protect people like, you know, Chuck Schumer and, and Nancy Pelosi and, and vice president Pence in particular, how swiftly and, and well, they did their jobs at that moment. We should really thank them for that service. So even as the Capitol Police and law enforcement in D.C. is undergoing a lot of scrutiny, as it should, about what happened that day, a lot of those men and women did their jobs in the face of, as Abe says, a massive mob. And 
I will also say that I what I found in, interesting about yesterday was how they're now connecting not just what the incitement that occurred before the attack, but how Trump reacted during and after when people in the Capitol were calling and saying this is going on. You know, there, there was a call about even Pence's safety and he did nothing or he didn't. You know, th- there was no reaction to that. There was no immediate response. The law enforcement folks who were outnumbered there were left to their own devices and the president did not do his duty and protect. Well, we still don't know. I mean, we still that's the missing piece of the puzzle here is they have not outlined. And maybe they don't have the goods, but they we don't know what the president was doing from between roughly one to three thirty p.m. that day, and why there was a delay in the in the uh, uh, release of National Guard troops to the Capitol. That's that's but we have people calling him and telling him what was going on. Right? We've had a couple. There were a couple of Congress. There was a congressman who called and said this is happening. Yeah, but in the absence of witnesses testifying under oath as to where the president was and what he was doing, we won't have a definitive answer to that question. And, um, you know, I don't suspect uh, you can't reason Republicans out of their recalcitrance at this point. It's not a reasoned position they've they've uh, entered into. Oh, it's a to- I think it's a totally reasoned position. It's a oh, totally reason. It's reason no, as far as it's self-preservation. Right. I mean, the reason is that the that their their voters and their base and all that, that they don't have evidence or an indication that they would treat this as anything other than a betrayal. And so and so you have a very stark contrast uh, between or or a character test or whatever we wanted between their own uh, personal political interest and what it means to be a representative politician. It's a very complicated point and a complicated question, not the easiest to resolve. And what they are seeing, the evidence of their own eyes. Now, they can they can choose to react by saying that everything they're seeing is illegitimate. That's what Lindsey Graham is going to do. The whole thing is ridiculous. Trump didn't do anything wrong. Or, you know, even if he did something wrong, he did something that was so little wrong that it really doesn't require, you know, this measure. And it's the people who are doing it who are guilty of, you know, of a, of a crime against, you know, our democracy or something like that. Or, uh, or they... Uh, can look at it and and Ted Cruz compa- said that it was uh that it was uh, a tale of sound and fury which uh you know despite the comic uh the comic scoffing of um Andrea Mitchell thinking that that was a line from Faulkner and not that Faulkner was quoting Shakespeare he was quoting Shakespeare and it is you know Macbeth's terminal uh nihilistic monologue which is that you know uh life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. So what Cruz was saying is what they're seeing signifies nothing. And so they can go on and try to make this argument. Um, It's very hard after yesterday to see how the judgment of history is going to, that history is going to look favorably on those who looked at this and then looked away. Having said that in a, court of in a criminal court um there were a couple of stretches uh you know a couple of real um elisions over what is known and what is not known uh so um uh congressman dean who made one of the presentations uh quoted from an article in the independent the british newspaper that said that you know trump knew what was good trump that said that Trump, the Trump people uh, monitor Reddit and 4chan and all this very, very, very closely. And the social media team is very up on what's going on. So they would have known 
that there were messages on the board planning for uh, planning for the violence uh, before the rally. Uh, and therefore, she uses that one article, sourceless, to then go on and say they knew. <laughs> you know, um, no firsthand evidence, no firsthand account that they knew. The article itself provided no proof or even anal- quotes or something that said that they knew. It just said that they, this was something they paid attention to. And that was in September or something. You know, it's not like. It's not like in January, you know. So that was one bad thing, right? And then she also did a thing where, actually, I think there was uh, Stacey uh, Plaskett, but um, where Congressman uh, Dean then uh, set the whole thing up about Trump's speech and all the stuff in Trump's speech and then played the clip of Trump saying, we're going to go down to the Capitol and go in peace and go peacefully and uh, like that. And then... She said, but, you know, that he used the word peacefully. There were 8,000 words in the speech, and he only used it once. But, of course, again, like in a court of law, uh, saying that he said peacefully would basically be the all you would need for, um, you know, a reasonable doubt or something like that or, you know, assignment of responsibility. So th- I think those were the bad moments in the presentation of the case. The good moments were every other moment. I mean, the good moments were uh, this was going on and two, three hours later, Trump had done nothing while everybody what? else in America was watching this on TV and he didn't do anything. He did tweet. He tweeted inflammatory things. What they right. established pretty effectively is by itemizing the number of Republicans who in that moment were begging the president to intervene in this situation that he had no responsibility for creating. Uh, those right. two things don't match. Right. So it was Mike Gallagher, congressman from uh, Wisconsin, who's a, a, a great guy. He was one. Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy, Lindsey Graham. Right. And, uh, and then, of course, outside the outside the chamber, uh, Chris Christie, you know, who was literally saying he's, you know, the only person who can stop this is Trump. Um. So there was an understanding of the idea that he could do something to stop it and he didn't do anything. What we don't know is what was going on in there with him, right? And that's where not calling witnesses, not having subpoena power, not doing anything like that is going to leave that question unresolved until people write their memoirs. We don't, um, we don't know. I mean, these were just opening arguments. Uh, we prejudged the evidence that they had to present during opening arguments and we were wrong. They had more than we thought they had. Right. So again, it is wise, as I keep saying, to reserve judgment until we have the evidence in front of us. Okay, well, that's an important point because, of course, tomorrow the the case is going to wrap up and then they have to vote on whether to have witnesses. And we're told, of course, that Chuck Schumer doesn't want witnesses, right? He doesn't want witnesses. And, of course, uh, the Republicans don't want witnesses. So, therefore, a 50-50, whatever. Okay. Um. But what if the Democrats want witnesses? Is Chuck Schumer going to cross over and vote with 50 Republicans to make it so that there are no witnesses? If if they don't have like a common agreement that there shouldn't be witnesses, you could get 40, 45. I mean, you could after what happened yesterday and whatever happens today and tomorrow, you could have Democratic senators insisting that they keep this going, 
even though supposedly it's not what Biden wants and it's not what they want, I guess. Right. I mean, um, because at some point you're then going to have a weird thing where you're going to have 10 Democrats colluding with 50 Republicans to prevent the calling of witnesses at a at a at a at a trial that has just revealed, you know, very serious allegations against, you know, about the about a threat to our democracy. Schumer going to want doesn't Schumer need the cover of his entire of a like unanimous consent not to have witnesses? I mean, that's I think where you're right, Noah. Like I I don't know that we know where that's going to go. Um but uh so the other question is so is was so those things that I mentioned the weaknesses in their in their in their presentations uh this kind of Trump knew or should have known right or Trump knew uh and what he knew was everything he knew beforehand that they were coming he knew beforehand that they wanted to do violence he knew what they were doing when he was on the set and then he knew what they were doing while he was in the white house not doing anything and there are a couple of there are a couple of weak links there because we we don't know uh what he knew i i was struck watching the horrifying footage like a by the by the size of the crowds and the fact that of of course going into the building is a funnel so the funnel obviously narrows the number of you know the the amount of volume that is going to go in simply because you've got to go through doorways and things like that um uh but i was also struck by uh and i always hate these analogies when people like after 9/11 say it was like a movie where you know that you know the planes are blowing up it's like independence day you can't believe it it's like a movie but what struck me watching this was not that i was watching it and thinking that this was like a movie but that the rioters were acting, behaving, and conducting themselves as though they were extras in specifically two movies or three movies. Joker, The Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight Rises, uh, all of which feature uh, bizarre mob action uh, and uh, and kind of vigilante behavior. Um, and they seemed like they were cosplaying for real in and that something had happened that broke free in them and that they were now suddenly in a movie like people who don't know that movies aren't real that you know if you go on a movie set and there's you know there's a there big stuff then there's also like cameras everywhere and there are walls where there aren't set and and there are 200 people standing around watching while people are putting makeup on people it's like they were in a 3D realization of their wildest political fantasy, and they were having a fantastic time. What what does that tell you? I don't even know what it tells me. There, there was I was following a little bit along with the kind of live commentary that the New York Times was doing um, as the trial was going on, and and the the kind of mainstream liberal media response was, "Look at them! They're just in, you know they they're proud of themselves. They're proud of themselves." And I think they kind of misconstrued that. I think it's much closer to what you're talking about, John. I think that they actually kind of became empowered almost surprisingly so at the moment they broke through and suddenly found themselves there, they started to kind of feel like they were the stars in their own movie, right? Like, it's like, now we're important. Look at how important we are. We are on the floor of the Senate rifling through power. They, it was the image of them opening up the senator's desks, actually, which, you know, 
even if you're allowed on the floor of the Senate, you don't go around rummaging in people's desks. Um, they were living there, and and no one Noah said this on our text chain. He's like, they're living there. It's like unreal reality, right? They're, they they want to live in the unreality and turn it into a reality, and that's kind of this surreal moment on the floor of uh, the Capitol that you saw playing out in real time, the guys in, in kind of tack gear and, you know, holding the, uh, the handcuffs, the, the, the plastic handcuffs. I mean, there was something very strange. They would have looked ridiculous and did look ridiculous just a few hours earlier when they left their hotel, but then they were ridiculous. And then suddenly when they're all in the Senate, they, they're real life, it's real life and they're, they're players. So I don't think it was that they were proud. It was something a little bit more, pernicious and uh, different than pride. Well, like, you know, the mob in The Dark Knight Rises, which is a movie about a totalitarian takeover of New York City. And if you haven't seen it, it's quite... Populist. Populist totalitarian... I mean, if you haven't seen it, it's quite quite a brilliant movie that goes places you don't expect and and has a a real real guttural, you know, political impact. Um, uh, for a superhero movie, certainly because it's a Batman movie. Um, but uh, the point is that they weren't acting like the good guys. That's the other weird part. I mean, they thought they were the good guys, but the w- guy who was wa- wa- who was running through the hallway, going, "Nancy, Nancy, where are you? Nancy, we're looking for you." That's not the good guy. That's the guy with the bottles on his fingers from the Warriors going, right. Warriors, come out to play. That's a horror movie character. Yeah. That's Jack Nicholson in The Shining. That's who they were embodying was a kind of weird amalgam of black, of white hats coming in to save democracy from the evil, you know, liberals and uh, villains out of horror movies. I don't even know what to Abe help me help me Well I want to I want to make this point very delicately cuz I don't want it to seem as if I'm actually uh, blaming this type of thing for for what happened but there has been over the last few decades now this rise in um adults playing at fictional fantastical heroes if it's it could be you know Comic-Con. I mean, so Christine made me think because you realize they had to leave their hotels looking like that. And so there's a there's a fine line between sort of laughing at adults, you know, it playing dress up and um, um, then seeing them sort of, you know, go do this in, in the in the real world. Um, it applies also to like uh, school shooters think they're in the Matrix. Right. Uh, they put on the black trench coat and the glasses and they you know, and, and, and so on. So there, there, there has been a trend in the culture of, um, uh, adults losing themselves in these fantasies, in the, in these scripted mm-hmm. fantasies. It's, it's true. I don't, I don't think therefore we need to, uh, you know, uh, expunge th- those things from the culture, but but I think I think you can you can see the connection for sure. Well, that that impulse to kind of disappear into a into a group that has a mission and a purpose is is a very powerful human need. I mean, actually, when people try to understand how Antifa behaves and how they all you know they all have a uniform, they wear their black block, you know, they they have a whole thing, and you can disappear into that group, and suddenly you're part of a group with a mission. And there was a sense. I mean, for all of the chaos, once they actually got into the Capitol, 
there was a there was a distinct difference between the people who were kind of wandering around sort of seeming a little shell-shocked at where they were and 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 maybe only too late realizing they were committing a felony um and the people who were like now we're in let's go so it's strange how in some ways they were completely not organized at the same time that that's why I think this is where Trump's role is crucial because it and we talked about this a little bit yesterday none of this would have happened without Trump and that's the political point that I think impeachment and removal speaks to, which isn't about, you know, testifying in criminal court with witnesses. I will say to the witness point, the witnesses in a weird way might actually undermine the narrative that the, the prosecution has has already been building. Um, witnesses can be unreliable. They can think they saw something that they didn't. And there could be a lot of if you introduce a lot of that testimony into this uh, trial, uh, some of the clarity of events that we've been kind of praising the prosecutors for for uh, painstakingly uh, talking about over the last few days could get a little muddled. This gets to my darkest theory <clears throat> about why we're not going to get a on the record under penalty of perjury account of what the president was doing and why there was a delay in the National Guard, because it wouldn't implicate all the right people, um, because well, a lot of these restrictions were imposed after the summer riots. Uh, Washington, D.C. had its own um, preferences that uh, led to a lack of mobilization on the part of uh, local national level officials in the National Guard and the Pentagon. So there's probably going to be enough there to get Trump. Sure. But also enough to implicate everybody around him and not just Republicans. And if they want to avoid that kind of a lack of clarity and, you know, the establishment of just defined white hats and black hats, and we're not going to get the answer to this question. And then we're not going to get the answer to this question whatsoever or until and unless you get some sort of a bipartisan commission that establishes, you know, writes a book about this thing two years later after there's nothing you can do about it. It's just academic. Uh, it's just, central. Yeah, sorry. I, I just want to add a, a, a point. It's a side point, but building on what Noah said, that um, now having seen this fuller picture of what the Capitol Hill police went through um, and, the, and how life-saving and uh, heroic some of them were, um, in this case, I do think that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris should offer a- a- apologies for jumping on the um, if this were Black Lives Matter, uh, the, the Capitol Hill police would have acted differently bandwagon. That was just shameful and flat oh out God. wrong. And, and, and they jumped right in the breach right away in the worst I, way. I, I but, but look, I Castro, Julian, Julian Castro made the case that Trump made no attempt to reach the National Guard, quote, made no attempt. That allegation is not substantiated to the to the extent that I want it substantiated. And certainly Republicans aren't, aren't interested in this. But I mean, if you're going to put the squeeze on them, you have to validate that claim. You know, I mean, the truth is, though, it's an interesting question about uh, about what what could be found out. Uh, uh, because the executive branch is a co-equal branch of government, Congress... Uh, Practically speaking, it's a complicated issue whether Congress can <clears throat> compel testimony even from former officials about what went on between them and the in in their official maintenance of their official duties. Uh, they that that testimony cannot be compelled <clears throat> because and when when White House officials testify before commissions and you know special prosecutors and stuff like that. Um, that 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 is a result of lengthy negotiations with the White House in order to make sure that we don't face these kind of tests that we end up facing during the Trump presidency, <clears throat> you know, where they were trying to call people and Trump 
and, and you know, the Supreme Court started getting involved in whether or not subpoenas needed to be, you know, the, the clock ran out on all of it. But I don't know that we could get it if we wanted it. The real question is whether <clears throat> in the having of witnesses, is there, a, is there a dark night of the soul moment? I mean, this is really out of a movie. But a dark night of the soul moment for Mike Pence, who says, I really have to go give my witness and tell people what happened. Now, of course, he could do it without being in front of Congress. He could give an interview. He could write an op-ed. He could explain what happened. He doesn't need to testify before Congress. But you could have some kind of, you know, there's a 10% chance somebody says, I just can't remain silent. The public needs to know what happened. Or or not. Um but I, I, I don't think that there is a conscious understanding on the part of Democrats that, uh, that um, if, you, if you delve too deeply into this, their own complicity with rioters in the summer uh, would, be, would be more uh, revealed. Like uh, they don't think they were rioters and they don't think that anything th- that happened there was wrong. I mean, just to clarify, though, the, yeah. uh, the public reporting that we have is that restrictions were imposed on, on the uh, National Guard in Washington, D.C. after the riots to avoid the kind of thing that we saw during the summer, which so it's it's not. Oh, I see. I'm sorry. Per se. Right. OK. With the riots. Right. It's it's after the fact and over correction. Yeah. Right. But I mean, again, I do. I, do I is it my do I think that that is consciously and cynically motivating Democrats to avoid witnesses? I kind of doubt it. I mean, it could be. Yeah, I mean, that I, gives I them, that gives them more. It's yeah. conspiratorial on my part. Yeah. Well, no, but it gives it also gives them more uh, more self knowledge uh, than I think they possess. I think uh, they are still living in a brainwashed reality in which they are not allowed to look at anything that happened in the aftermath of George Floyd as anything but righteous, and they they don't, and they 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 can't, and so therefore the notion that they would need to keep it quiet, I think. I, I wish it were true. I wish it were. That, I wish that it were that clear to them, and that they were being that cynical. But I, I, I don't actually. Um, and you know, with all this talk about uh, people living on living online rather than in the real world, uh, it's important that people online understand what they're getting into when they're online, particularly in their relation with. Uh, the big tech uh, companies which are trying to suppress free speech they don't agree with and why are we choosing to give them all of our personal data because we do big tech has made it clear which side they're on and now is the time to take a stand protect your personal data from big tech with the vpn i trust for my online protection express vpn look i you know anytime you go anywhere on the internet your ip address is registered your uh, internet service provider knows where you were, takes that data and sells it to whoever can think they can profit off knowing where you were and what interests you. Um, so when I use ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through their secure encrypted servers. So those companies can't see my IP address at all. My internet activity is anonymized. My network data is encrypted. And uh, the best part is you don't need to be tech savvy at all to use ExpressVPN. Just download the app on your phone or computer, tap one button, and you're protected. So stop handing over your data to big tech companies whose aim is to censor you, inspire on you, defend your rights, protect your internet activity with the VPN I use every day. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash commentary to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com right now to learn more. 
Um, just to uh, go back to the point about people who are like living, you know, who who seem to be living a, a, a fantasy in real life. I mean, I, I do think that there is an interesting. I don't think it's generational. Maybe it's cognitive or perceptual divide. Uh, I have found in my life, and this is like pretty much from the earliest days of video games, that I I find them not alluring but kind of repelling, and the deeper and more <clears throat> intent, uh, intense they become, the more I, I am aesthetically and somehow, I don't know, just like uh, in, my, in my gut kind of repelled. And that gets deeper and deeper as you go into stuff like Oculus and virtual reality, where like I find the experience of that uh, unpleasant. Like I don't like the re- I don't like this effort to re- rewrite reality or to so layer over a different or new kind of reality. It's not good enough on the one hand to make me lose myself in the fantasy. It's not effective enough. And where it where it diverges, I find can find literally nauseating. I mean, honestly, like that weird thing where your your perceptual gaps between what you're seeing and what you think you're seeing causes nausea which is what you know uh, what um car sickness is or what motion sickness is in general um so that's how i feel so it's very easy for me to go i don't know what the hell is going on with these people with the q q q and on shaman and this guy walking around and doing the larping and you know getting involved in q and on fantasies and all this because it's it's it, it it literally repels me um but i can sure understand intellectually caught why it would be alluring to people who are not enjoying or liking their lives why why is QAnon? why are conspiracies so seductive not just because they provide a narrative that makes things that seem incomprehensibly difficult suddenly very easy to understand but also because they're fun and you get to you move into you take that which is the pill you take in the matrix to see the real world? Is it the red one? Red or the pill. Blue one? The red one. Okay. The red so you pill. take the red pill and then you are part of a new, very melodramatic understanding of how the world is working in which there are forces against you and all of this. I mean, if you're, if your life is crappy, if you owe a lot of money and you're divorced or you're this, or you're having, you know, you're like, you're, you're not w- with your family anymore. You can't find somebody to be with, or your job is unsat, whatever it is. It sure is it sure is understand understandable why you would find this alluring. The I risk, think, yeah, the, the risk of igniting intergenerational conflict. Um, I am a, a video game consumer, and okay. I enjoy them. I think they're immersive. They're increasingly cinematic, um, and they're some of the best writing, um, nonfiction or fictional uh, writing and narratives are being crafted for these platforms today. Um, the notion here that this is some sort of a unique phenomenon that people losing themselves in a fictional narrative is unique to video games is a historical. This has been with us for mil- millennia. Right. Of course. Some of the best novels are of people who lose themselves in oh, fictional accounts and ruin their own lives in pursuit of a fictionalized uh, reality. No, of course. I, I'm look a hundred million people to whatever play video games. So I'm saying that my perception is of a person who can't really participate in that. There's something in me that resists that. I not. I don't resist it in novels. I don't resist it in plays. I don't resist. But I resist it in like 
cosplay, video gaming, however great it is. And I believe you that it's incredibly alluring because there's a reason that you put out an edition of a video game and it sells $2 billion worth of, you know, it sells itself $2 billion in the first day that it's released. Like that's, people love it. I understand that. I I, I do think though, I mean, I take Noah's point, but I do think there's something different going on today um, in terms of, um, people living out uh, non-reality. For example, I mean, there's this whole um, simulation hypothesis, which has gained um, a lot of popularity over the past, I don't know, 10 years or so. Right. And this is, this is in some sense, it's, it's it's a, it's a serious um, sort of um, uh, philosophical proposal that, that the universe is in fact uh, a simulation, some sort of high tech computer simulation. And we are, um, um, sort of either, you know, uh, players, uh, so, you know, avatars in it or, um, sort of, uh, non, non-playing characters in it, something like that. Right. Um, yeah. uh, and it, but it, I think it, all of it speaks to, there is such a information glut that, um, the conspiracy theories and the and the sort of dive into non-reality is a sort of way of handling that is is one way of trying to to um, navigate um, this this insane amount of information and entertainment and data that is thrown at us. And I think the kind of the mirror image of that, by the way, is is wanting is this need for like experts to make sense of everything instead to this organize is- it. This is a really good point because it, it speaks to um, the reality part of any kind of augmented reality, right? I, I remember trying Google Glass when they first came out. They got a group of us together, like, put these on, see what it's like. And I had, John, I had the reaction that you described with video games. It was kind of cool, but it was also, I was like, I like my reality and this is, seems distracting from it. But if you don't like your reality, or as to Abe's point, if reality is so confusing that you have to like cafeteria, pick the parts of it that you want to focus on and believe and then reject the rest, then augmented reality or, or kind of cosplaying the unreality becomes a lot more appealing. And especially when you can meet up with thousands of other people who enjoy doing that with you. So I think there's a way in which, I mean, part of the reason why augmented reality technology hasn't really taken off is that to your point, Noah, you can immerse yourself in fictional worlds uh, on the screen that that are much more interesting and challenging and, and it, are better storytelling than just overlaying something on your own reality and walking around. I remember that the ethicist concern when things like Google Glass came out was that people would want to erase as they walk down a city street piles of garbage or homeless people. They wanted to get rid of all the ugly stuff that they might encounter. So that was that was the concern ethically is it would become less empathetic human beings if we could erase reality. But what in fact we've ended up doing is being able to have so much choice about the realities we focus on that we form tribes and then run with our tribe, even if they're wearing a Viking hat and, you know, painting their bodies red, white, and blue. Yeah. I mean, not, not only, but not only is this not new, but it is self-destructive. I mean, just, just because you're living a modern version of Madame Bovary doesn't mean you're going to escape the consequences, which are perennial. This is just human nature. Right. But I mean, you know, I, I think that the, the weird combination of, of uh, of indivi- of extreme individualism and then this weird communitarianism that are involved in these you know multiple online player games you know where like people are playing against tens of thousands of other people 
whom they don't know or they don't they know some because all their friends are doing it also but this so you have this kind of extreme individuality you're putting on a virtual reality I, I know this is most of these games aren't like that but you put on a virtual reality helmet you're somehow you're turned into something else and someone else uh and then you have these relationships with people that you don't know and they're not real they're not real you're not real you're an avatar they're an avatar it is new. It's a new thing that is going on. A lot of this was theoretical, right? I mean, like Madame Bovary. Madame Bovary wanted to live in a romance novel, and she destroyed her own life by acting like a character in a romance novel. But uh, uh, that's one person behaving in a weird way. I mean, one representative person. Um, This is a new thing where you can kind of absent yourself. Not that Literature isn't about absenting yourself, but you can almost literally absent yourself from ordinary consciousness and like and 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 go somewhere else. It's weird. But the feelings are real. Yeah. This is you said it yeah. was unreal. Like right. that's the thing that's most powerful about it is that you're you might be an avatar and playing with lots of people you've never met, but the experience is actually emotionally real for you, and that's its right. power. And that's how the games are designed to exploit that yeah. for pleasure. But there can be right. a dark side to all pleasures. I mean, right. well, is, yeah. And that's yeah. why you don't want to say, I don't, I don't want them banned. I don't think they're the reason that we have, you know, this isn't the reason that we had uh, a, a storming of the Capitol on January 6th. I just think it's, it's an, in, it, there's something indicative if we're trying to understand it. Right. I mean, it's part of the QAnon thing. These brilliant pieces that were written over the summer explaining that QAnon is basically a game. I mean, QAnon is a, QAnon is an unfolding, it's like a game or it's like a, a, a long-running serial like Lost or something where there's an unrolling conspiracy that just gets larger and larger and larger and more and more and more complicated and 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 deeply involving. And, you know, th- this has always been something that people on Earth cotton to. Uh, the fact that it can be cotton to simultaneously by millions of people, that's that's new, right? And it's interesting, Abe, you talk about the simulation hypothesis and this notion that we're all living, you know. Uh, I mean, metaphorically, this has always been a theory. This has always been a, a weird kind of paganistic theory. You know, it's, 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 again, not to quote Shakespeare constantly, but as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport in the world of paganism we are game pieces on the on the planet earth that and we're being toyed with by not by a moral loving beneficent god who wants what's best for us and wants us to live according to a moral code but for their sport i think yeah I, i think the paganism point is very valid because i think in part what a lot of this is is a kind of religious revival without religion. I mean, because they, they are aiming at a kind of transcendence and a kind of community. Um, by they, I mean, you know, anyone who um, dives into this sort of um, uh, non-material version of reality. Um, that is, in part, to some extent, something that that was the domain of religion, which has, of course, been on a steep, steep decline. Well, and this is why this is where Trump factors into the the particular part of that narrative that unspooled on January 6th, which is that, you know, faiths need martyrs. 
and him turning himself into a martyr for this, you know, glorious cause of, you know, the stop. And this is where the stop the steal, which I was glad they paid some attention to during uh, their arguments yesterday. Stop the steal. You know, they're trying to they're they're coming to get they're coming to get me. They hate me. They hate you. You have to rescue. I mean, there is just it's a, it's a kind of evangelizing to that mindset. I think that's absolutely right. And, and you know, I think I think it, it all it all speaks to <clears throat> this clear crisis of meaning that we have in the United States that explains, you know, the, um, the opioid epidemic and this, um, you know, this wild increase in the number of suicides in the last uh, uh, 10, 12 years that, that we hear about and all of that. It is this like collapse of meaning and crisis of meaning and people find it are so, are so desperate for it that they find it wherever they can find it. It's sort of like the, in the early 1970s, uh, with the rise of cults in the United States that freaked everybody out. You know, it was like horrifying. What are they doing? They're going into cults. They're going into ashrams. They're going, they're becoming moonies. They're, what is going on here? This is all terrible. They were all nice upper middle class kids raised in loving homes. What's going on? And what was going on was that, you know, they were starved for meaning and they, and they, and w- at one point in their lives looking for an anchor to grab onto lest they drown, this is the thing that they attach to. This yoga ashram, this, you know, streets, this this preacher on the side road, it was, it's the story of, of, of evangelical Christianity forever. Uh, you know, I know this one story about a, the, the father of someone that was a friend of mine uh, several decades ago who was a, a a lawyer who was traveling and traveled six months out of the year and lived in hotel, you know, doing like doing briefs and stuff like that. And as a drunk and he's sitting in a hotel room uh, with his bottle by himself alone in front of a TV, turns on the TV and some TV evangelist comes on and he says, I know you're out there. I know who you are. You're sitting in a hotel room. You're alone. It's dark. You have a bottle in your hand and a glass in your other hand and you feel like you want to die, and Jesus loves you. And he burst into tears, and he became an evangelical Christian at that moment because it was the right moment. It was, and so at any all these stories you read about QAnon, all these stories of all of this, there's a crisis that is resolved by grabbing by by grabbing onto this. It's not game. It turns. It goes from a game into something other than a game. And the last two months of the Trump presidency were. Millions of people grabbing on to this idea of the stolen election and the and the, the that there were that there were there was a force for good and a force for evil and the evil force was doing whatever it could to stop the good and I don't know that we've had a moment this quick this fast or this powerful before that I can think of that sent tens of millions of people on to believing something that was not true, that all the evidence of their eyes should have told them was not true. And it is a crisis of meaning. They needed me. They needed to find meaning in this moment, and Trump provided it for them in some weird way. Um, and uh, with that, let me talk to you <laughs> about how to avoid credit card debt or how to solve, resolve your credit card debt, actually. Uh, in a much more comfortable way than you have maybe thus far. Um, you know, you never know what life is going to throw at you. So a lot of people had to use credit cards to pay for unexpe- unexpected expenses last year. 
and the bill is coming due and tracking those balances, those due dates, those logins, so stressful with your credit cards. So if you go to Upstart, you end up with one monthly payment in one place because it's the fast and easy way to get a personal loan to pay off your debt all online. Whether you're paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get a simple fixed monthly payment. Upstart finds smarter rates with trusted partners because they assess more than just your credit score. With a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate up front for loans from $1,000 to $50,000. You can get approved the same day, receive funds as fast as one business day. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash commentary. That's upstart.com slash commentary. Don't forget to use the commentary URL here, upstart.com slash commentary, to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit income and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash commentary. Um, so, Christine, you were uh, particularly horrified uh, yesterday, as I think many people in America were, to read this story in the New York Times about the doctor in Texas who got himself fired. Can you uh, yes, tell uh, me why? Dr. Hassan Gokal in, in Houston, um, there's a it's a it's a fascinating and kind of heartbreaking story to read. He was administering vaccines. Um, they had some that were set to expire. I believe it was ten shots. And so he decided, I'm not going to let this vaccine go to waste. Um, he called strangers who, whose medical records he was able to determine put them at higher risk. You know, a woman whose child was on a ventilator, some, you know, other people with, with uh, breathing challenges who, who hadn't, who maybe weren't, wouldn't have been at the front of the line, um, had everything been done orderly. But, you know, his, he literally felt like there was a ticking clock and whoever could get the vaccine should get it. He drove around, set up meetings. Some of them came to his house and he administered all the doses. The final dose um, he was intending to give to a man who then called and said, I can't make it to your house in time before it expires. Sorry. Final dose he gave to his wife who has a, has a uh, breathing condition that certainly puts her at, at some risk if she contracts COVID. And for this, he was fired. He was fired and he's, he's being prosecuted. Uh, the judge actually just dismissed one case, but there, it's clear he could face other other problems. Um, and it was heartbreaking because one of the arguments made against him was that he hadn't practiced the principles of equity in, in administering this vaccine. There were too many Indian sounding names on the list of people he had vaccinated because he then went to work the next day and filled out the paperwork to show where the final doses had gone. And that it would have been better had he thrown out those doses than that he administered them to people who would benefit from having them. And which by, you know, because we understand how herd immunity works, the more people who have that shot in their arm, the safer we all are, especially those of us who are way down on the list to get a shot. Um, So it was kind of heartbreaking, but it was also extremely uh, uh, revealing. It, It literally shows you how the equity talk and the equity mindset, when prosecuted to its logical conclusion, can cost not only cost people their jobs, but it, it it would argue I would argue it can cost people their health and perhaps their lives. Because if you're arguing that in the name of equity he should have thrown out those doses rather than administer them, administer them, that's what you're arguing. That's the equity argument taken to its logical conclusion, and it's horrifying, absolutely horrifying. Right. That that, that is his testimony. Right. He he told the reporter yes. from the New York Times, "quote." The, official main, the officials maintained that he had violated protocol and should have returned the remaining doses to the office or thrown them away, the doctor recalled. He also said that one of the officials startled him by questioning the lack of, quote, equity among those he had vaccinated. 
Are you suggesting that there were too many Indian names in that group, Dr. Gokul said, he asked. Exactly, he said he was told. The director of communications for the Harris County Public Health Department said the department was unable to comment on its protocols, the December 29th vaccination event, or the Gokul case. Uh, Really? Well, the judge Uh, is unable to comment on its (laughs) protocols. The public health department of Harris County, Texas, is unable to comment on its public protocols. You know why? Because they know that what happened here was true and that he better something. I mean, it's it's. Yeah. And then he got prosecuted by the district attorney of Harris County. So this is. Ultimately, I think where this is going is that there's going to be a a clash uh, in the courts, perhaps even in the Supreme Court, between the principles of equity, which are principles, not not law, and the Equal Protection Clause, because the two things are at odds. One or the other must be subordinated, um, because we've seen too much of this. We've seen too much of it's not. This is the most extreme case but the extent to which the principles of equity are used to justify the discrimination. Yes, against whites, but who cares, right? You know, whites deserve their comeuppance. That's social justice. Um, but Asian Americans who are successful on their own merits and merit itself is a suspect concept. So eventually we're going to get around to a discrimination case that is justified by equity. Um, but is that odds with the 14th Amendment? Well, you know, uh, we've been waiting. We've been waiting for the Supreme Court to to resolve this problem for really since the Baki case in 1978, I believe, and they steadfastly refused to do so. And I think even if it gets to this point, they will figure. Oh, out but some we're way talking to... about private institutions. Private institutions have come up in, before, right. in the dock before the Supreme Court. We're going to we're going to encounter a case where we have a public institution. Well, this is a right. Well, because that's Biden's whole point about his equity proposals, that it is through every single branch of the federal government will practice these principles. So he's actually stating this is how we're going to go about governing at the federal level. Right. I mean, I mean, the, the whole point about about these stories about offenses against equity is that they is that they always involve something, they don't always, whatever, but they, they fly in the face of common sense. And one of the one of the causes of wokeness or one of the principles of wokeness in some sense, it feels like, is to say to you, your common sense is wrong. In fact, your common sense is white supremacy. Your common sense is the enforcement procedure or mechanism that allows the status quo to remain in place. Because if somebody says Dr. Hassan Gokul did a heroic thing by making sure that those 10 doses that were going to go to waste actually got into people's arms and thus uh, were used useful and better rather than being thrown away because they don't violate protocol, right? If he gets away with this, what you're saying, anybody would say that's great, but it's, he is that means that you're still living within the world in which the first choice isn't if i'm going to do this i have to go and find somebody who fits a category to do this otherwise uh the thing that's worse which is white supremacy will remain worse than covid will remain in place and and unchallenged which is why of course the public health department said that it was more important 
to protest after George Floyd than it was to uh, observe proper COVID protocol because and nothing is worse than white supremacy. Nothing is worse than than not supporting this revolutionary doctrine. And I don't know how it, how this gets resolved because nobody actually believes this. I mean, 99 out of 100 people, you tell them this story and they're going to say, well, of course he did the right, leave the guy alone. You need the ideologist, you need the Zinoviev who will explain to you, or the Nicole Hannah-Jones who will explain to you why this is a necessary, those 10 doses are a necessary sacrifice to a vastly greater good. And Hassan Gokul's career is a necessary sacrifice to a far greater good. And this is the danger. I mean, we, you know, conservatives talk too much about cancel culture, you know, ideological campaigns. The danger of those campaigns is that the more they succeed and the more they indoctrinate an entire generation of young Americans who then, you know, find their way onto to into jobs and into the workplace is that you will not have, you'll have more people like that prosecutor in Harris County and you'll have fewer people like the judge. The judge took one look at this case and said, this is ridiculous. Get out of my courtroom. And my fear with the as the that's why the indoctrination stuff is the stuff that conservatives really care about. And it starts early because the mindset actually can people will and do believe it. I think I think you're wrong about that, John. I think we're very skeptical, but you can see how people can be made to fit within that worldview, even if they privately still question it. Do you know what I mean? I I mean, I mean. If you took this case and you lifted it out of all and you said, there was a doctor, there were 10 doses of medicine, he found people to put him in there and he got fired. They yeah, were no, well, like that's terrible. Is, right? yeah. Then you say he's Indian and 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 he went around he's to people he knew and he got Pakistani, right? Yeah. But he gave them to South Asians. And right. they would go, well, he gave, and then it's like, but he didn't give them. You, ha- you have to go four steps down to get mm-hmm. to the, oh, well, that you know what? Maybe he really should have been more diverse when he was looking for it. It's not that the immediate thing you say is – he got fired because it's like, well, who did he give the meta? Who did he give it to? <laughs> what was the what, unless you start you start from at the moment where you say, well, did he give them to African Americans? Did he give them to uh, BIPOCs? You know, and if you don't say that first, then you're going to say, well, it's not fair. In line with the extremely high spirited and optimistic vision of America and human nature as expressed on this show, I do want to tell you that we will, in just a matter of days, have uh, available for you our merch. And yes, we do have a Crushing Morosity t-shirt, sweatshirt, uh, and a Keep the Candle Burning t-shirt and sweatshirt uh, that will be available to you at an exorbitant price because uh, they're really nice material and they cost a lot to make and then we have to ship them to you so you know we need to make a little money off it so if you want it you're going to pay through the nose and you'll like it that's what i'm saying you'll like it and you'll like christine rosen's essay in the new uh, commentary uh which we will have up on the website uh, tonight or tomorrow uh, along with other stuff that I'll tell you about tomorrow. So for Christine Abenoam, John Podhoritz, keep the camel burning.